John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 510.1K0609, certificate number 49729, the Futuro House. I press this thing for meals and hi-fi music comes out of the garbage disposal. I never know what's going to come out. Did I say that right? Futuro. I said it like Arturo. Futuro. The problem is if you say Futuro, it sounds like you're saying, I want to eat a few churros. And I you don't want to eat a few churros. I want to eat many churros. I don't want to eat any churros. Few would not be enough for my churro appetite. Well, how would you pronounce futuro if you were Finnish? That's an interesting question. How do the Finns pronounce futuro? You'd think there wouldn't be that ch. That's just a... Futuro. That, that's just a weird... Futuro. That's a weird English-only artifact, I would think. The the, the lack of N-E-C-H in yeah. F-U-T-U. And we're just putting it in like furniture. Futuro. In fact, where does that come from? Futuro. Uh, where does that come from? I don't know. Sure. I mean, it's one of those things where like you would, half of our listeners are yelling at me for pronouncing it wrong. I mean, nature and and uh, picture and all those words, really, they should be nature, mother nature. Yeah, m- mother nature. Nature. I mean, there is there is um, people who say mature instead of mature. I say it. Do you say mature? Uh, sometimes. Please, let's show a little maturity. I think I've said this before, but it just reminds <clears throat> me of like a, a fifth grade sex ed teacher. That's me. Do you also say puberty? I don't. <laughs> but, uh, but I do feel like, uh, yeah, the foot, foot in futura... It's not related to the foot in foot football. Well, these are from uh, no, it is not. <laughs> these are all from Romance language, you know, Latinate roots, which means that they would be imported into Finnish, right? Which doesn't know what to do with it, but they're all. So I was right when I said all rein, they're all reindeer farmers who wouldn't know what uh, what to do with a futuro house anyway, unless they borrow it. Wrong, you know, they make more uh, more cell phones than anywhere else in the world, or at least they used to. Plus, the beautiful mid century modern architecture, right? Yeah, we're going to talk about that a lot today. As is as is foreshadowed by the use of the word house after Futura. So you're, this, isn't like a, this isn't like a, a car show. I guessed. You, I, I, we've talked about it already, so I'm not outing you as somebody who now has a vacation cabin. We've got a little, we've got a little weekend place. A little island getaway. A little island getaway. It's still uh, on 
furnished and unremodeled, and it's a, probably a, just a huge disaster and a money pit. Oh, so you haven't you haven't? Uh, I thought you had a local guy that was up there, uh, like a like a weird caretaker. He's, yeah, we got a weird caretaker ha- hammering away. I don't know if he's like you're making it sound like he's some hunchbacked Igor type, well, and I don't believe so. I've been up to the San Juan Islands. I know how those people are. I think he's a nice island guy. The main problem is we need to get island rid of a guy. <laughs> do, do, do. <laughs> the main problem is we have a salmon canning shack that we do, that we inherited. <laughs> and when I say shack, it's it's a shed. It's, that's your big only problem. It's ginormous. Yeah, I mean first world problems, right? Oh, I have too many salmon canning sheds. Does it smell like salmon? No, I don't think it ever got used that much, um, but it sure is taking up a lot of real estate right in front of the house. So yeah. it's got to go. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna can salmon, you want to be able to see it from the living room. <laughs> it's, it's the first thing you see when you pull in the driveway. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, but how would you describe the architecture of your little your little getaway cabin? Sadly, I believe it was built in a in a dark time for mm. the for the for the Galactic Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, late 80s, early 90s. Oh, that is a dark time. I so, thought you were going to um, say something that I was going to be able to say, no, that's amazing. No, Cinder I, block architecture, that's the best. No, I, you know, you it's, you have a bad. lovely mid-century modern house of a style that maybe was briefly out of style and now could not be more um, sought after. Whereas this is a kind of, uh, there's a lot of Tile countertops. Oh, that's not good. It's, it, it's, Does it have glass brick in it anywhere? It's just very, <laughs> very well good. You're not wrong. It's in a time period where um, the kitchen is no longer um, kind of closeted away from prying eyes. So it's built in a time when the kitchen is part of the living area, but the kitchen has not yet become actually big enough to use for anything. So it's got the idea that you might want a little counter with bar stools on it, but this is new technology yeah. that no one has realized how to leverage. So it's kind of tucked away in a little corner of the main floor next to a mid a mudroom larger than the kitchen itself. Hmm. There's a lot of uh, a lot of mud up there. There is a lot of mud. And now we have a big room to make sure it, it doesn't get any further. <laughs> but yeah, not a not a high watermark for American residential architecture. I think people learned that the last thing you want to make your kitchen and bathroom uh, surfaces out of is tile because there's all those little grout lines that can get full of gross. We we loved, we had a period in our lives when we loved mission style furniture. But what that means in a dining room table is that effectively you have these lovely square grooves making a, a beautiful kind of decoration that your kids will immediately cake uh, strained peas and applesauce into. Yeah. Uh, so you have to, just, even when they're in their late teens, <laughs> even right now, all my kids eat a strained <laughs> peas and applesauce. Um, but your house, uh, your house in town is what you would call kind of, uh, like a modern craftsman, right? What, yeah, is like, that what you yeah, would say? Like all houses in Seattle, it's modern craftsman. It's not any a particularly authentic kind of craftsman. It just means that's where the, they just built something the size of the lot with the view they wanted and but then the, they put craftsman style. Yeah, uh, the elements would be craftsman influence. Yes, but how do you feel about uh, modernism? Have we talked about your your? Uh, I mean, you just you just generously complimented my house. But do you do you do you like uh, what what style do you like the most when it comes to architecture of American homes? I feel like when I see beautiful mid century modern architecture in a movie. On a trip to Palm Springs, 
uh, as a background in a fashion spread. I like it very much. I'm not sure if I find it homey enough that it's what I aspire to. Yeah. You know, I, I find it that I admire it more than I um, thrive in it. Mm-hmm. But you do both. You find it thrivable, apparently. Well, you know, I'm, uh, um, <clears throat> it's just, uh, it's a little bit, I find it a little bit cool, a little bit sterile. I guess I have enough of a 70s era childhood in me that something about me wants something a little later, even if that means shag carpeting in a conversation pit. Yeah. The, the, uh, the thing I learned about it was that there it had a lot of thought behind it. You know, it was uh, mid-century architecture was all developed after architecture had become a place where there was a, a lot of politics, you know, a lot of opportunity to uh, to talk about building a better world. How are we going to use architecture to be more compatible with Marxism, to to make living accommodations, Generous and welcoming for people of all strata uh, to build communities rather than think about uh, old cities as just a thing to tear down and replace with with uh, sterile construction. How do we make things that make people want to live better lives? Because it's true that it's, that kind of architecture doesn't strictly follow Bauhaus form must follow function lines, right? Like, no. like there's room for ornament and especially innovation. Yeah, and there's a lot. I mean, I the the architecture can be a little hectoring in the sense that it is trying to guide you. Your chair it, should look like this, and you should yeah. sit at this angle whether you feel like it or not. Yeah, the chair isn't built necessarily to be comfortable, which is co- counterintuitive to, a, to what you would set out to do mm-hmm. building a chair. Right, like if I were in the woods, if I were a Connecticut Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and had been transported through time, and was back there, and they were like, "Okay, fancy wizard, but build a chair," you know, I wouldn't think first, like, "How do I make it look really cool?" That'd be in the top two, but the first thing I would say is, "I'm, you know, I'm going to be sitting in this chair." So a you're, lot. you're kind of confirming my instinct that I can admire this stuff in a movie more than I like to sit on it. That, so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of design that is not just to be pretty. The design has a lot of thought behind it in terms of um, what, in terms of in, encouraging a style of life, a way of living. The conversation pit is a perfect example. Um, no one in a farmhouse would describe the living room as a conversation pit. <laughs> that's a that that's trying to reflect and also encourage a modern way of living. Um, when we did our remodel, I found that the 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 designers were very much speaking to us in the language of uh, of that. Like this is a drop zone. I'm like, that's not a thing. I'm not a paratrooper. No, a drop zone is just something designed so you have a place to plop stuff down you know the, the the person will want to have a space there to set the mail to put their you know whatever accumulates there um and then they spoke about the whole house that way like here's the intended use of every nook and cranny of this blueprint yeah i think that's become that that was taken from this era yeah. this mid, mid-century era yeah. and now is sort of the it's used by everybody in the trades as a as a way of of speaking but you know, I, I have found, for instance, in my house, like, uh, houses built before a certain time didn't have closets. You were expected to have a, 
put in an armoire. An armoire, and uh, and so now now there were closets, and just the just uh, interacting with a closet with a feeling like, wow, this was really. These sliding doors and this whole dis- design I mean, it, of the closet, it was novel. You can tell they haven't mastered it either. Yeah, exactly. It's like the doors are those kind of rickety hanging ones that kind of sway back and forth at the bottom. There's like one single clothes rod. Well, and in my case, my jackets and shirts are wider at the shoulder humble, than, humble brag. than a closet is meant to contain. And so, no, no closet can contain your masculinity. <laughs> so when I hang time the, to step out the, of the closet, the shirts in the closet, those swinging doors actually bulge out <laughs> because they can't they can't hold you in. They can't hold in the shirts. It's very frustrating to me that the closet isn't like three inches wider on either side. Those doors are no match for flannel. But but I I discovered that the room dimensions at my house were were meant to uh, affect the way you used the room. Like your bedrooms were small because you weren't supposed to do stuff there. Your bedroom wasn't a place that you sat and read all day. It was a place that you slept and then you got out and moved to the moved through the house. The funny thing is that the kitchen is small too because I assume because of, uh, well, that's, women don't have the prestige to have a nice room. Yeah, well... They want to get out of there as quick as they can. You know, and it's a it's a cozy area, and then the food comes out. And, and that's big, where it actually happens. Yeah, yeah. the food comes when, out through a little door when or dad, Yeah, it's, it's presentation for dad. Yeah, you right. know, let's see that roast. So, so I got interested in the, uh, you know, in all the thinking that went uh, along with the architecture. And you're absolutely right that there is... It's not off-putting... It feels a little bit um, like your house and your furniture are judging you. They're in charge. Yeah, and you're you walk in and you're like, oh, I don't want to sit on you, but God, you're so beautiful, and also you cost a lot. So <laughs> right, there's that. Too. I really don't. I'm, I can't just keep sitting on this this old ottoman that I got from my grandmother. I have to. Sit Whereas, on you, you know, Archie Bunker wants a chair he can dominate. Right. He wants to flop into it and push those springs back with his butt. Uh, even a recliner is a chair that you literally tell what to do. Yes. With a button. Up, down. Whereas. Those are your two options. <laughs> you have two <laughs> options. Whereas this is an era of furniture where the chair guides you to what life should be. But, but the thinking... Uh, around architecture, you know, it wasn't just, it wasn't super constrained once the cat was out of the bag. Uh, and there were a lot of different directions that architecture went. And in, in, in one direction, as a, as a University of Washington graduate, you know that brutalism was uh, very popular there in the late 60s. We've still got to do brutalism on the show. And we're going to, I swear to you, this is just another foreshadowing of it. But there was a, there was a style that that um, that kind of rose up in Japan at first, that was described as metabolism, and it was it, it would it would be familiar for you to see some of the designs, um, but it was an idea kind of taken maybe an extension of Gaudi, uh, where organic forms are being used, and it's not just decorative. You know, in in Gaudi's buildings the kind of melting organic art nouveau 
No corners in the rooms. He borrowed from nature, maybe. Borrowed from nature, but decorative. The Yeah, nature, but better. But the inside of a Gaudi apartment that has no flat surface or no corners in the rooms, that doesn't, I mean, I guess you could say, at least I don't have to dust the corners, but it's not improving the, it, it's not describing a philosophy of living, right? The Sagrada Familia is a, an incredible accomplishment architecturally. But, but it's pu- purely ornamental. It's not right? changing how you worship, yeah. right? Whereas metabolism and the, the this mid-century uh, trend toward organic forms was part of a larger idea of integrating construction into cities in a way that allowed us to live more organically. Um, And what that often meant was, I mean, how do you solve a problem like Maria? No. How do you kick her out of the convent? (laughs) How do you solve a problem where you want to build a building for 200 occupants that has to live within a city and um, and within, you know, a, a constrained footprint, but everyone who lives in the building gets some outdoor space or everyone gets their own bathroom or everyone has, you know, uh, the following amenities, but, it, but we're not just going to build a concrete block because we're trying to make it more livable, more like scaled more appropriately. Um, a lot of the old solutions for that are just wrong. You wrong. wind up, you wind up with that big scary hallway kind of le- down the middle of the building because of, you know, all the apartments units have taken the windows. Right. Um, we're not doing it right. No. And there are a lot, I mean, there are a lot of challenges, uh, in trying to give everybody outdoor space. If you, if you look at the solution that we have here in downtown Seattle, it is a giant skyscraper and everyone gets a five foot by eight foot balcony that kind of looks out over, you know, the wind tunnel of a modern city and compared to the apartment buildings built without balconies, it's kind of nice to be able to open the door and go stand out there on your, on your little, poop deck your your crow's nest it, it is a weird little thing that only a pigeon should have yeah but 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 it does solve the problem on paper it's just a question of is that really what a human wants yeah right to stand there and look up and look down and it's kind of like being on a cruise ship where you you walk out on the balcony of your room when you first arrive and you look up and along both sides of the ship and down and there's all these hundreds of other faces that are just arriving in their rooms and just first looking out like, hello, hello, all my pod friends. And a cruise ship is an interesting example, right? Because each one of those rooms, you know, there are four kinds or six kinds of rooms available on a cruise ship, and they're all modular. Each one is manufactured. They're not manufactured in situ, they're all manufactured somewhere else and slid into place like connecting blocks. Slid into place. Is that true? Chunk, chunk, chunk. All the pieces, you know, are, are, um, modular. Hmm. And there's a lot of modularity in modern construction, but it takes the form of pieces and parts. There's not, there, there aren't buildings and homes that are actually built Except for like the shower, maybe. Exactly, 
right? The shower comes in as a, as a piece, but the whole house isn't anymore. You don't see modular homes that often that aren't manufactured homes, what we would what call mobile homes or, or prefab, prefab kind of things. Homes. But there was a time when modularity and futurism and organic shapes were combined with a, with a new philosophy of living and it created some very unique structures for an unfortunately brief period of time. I guess we've talked about Bucky Fuller's geodesic domes. Is this, is this related to that period? A Buckminster Fuller was, was obviously a forerunner of all of this kind of style. His Dymaxion house was um, from 1933, a design that looked extremely futuristic, sort of, uh, it, and like a lot of Buckminster Fuller stuff, futuristic in both design and material. Um, and as we'll see in a minute, influenced by grain silo construction, I think, um, and, and influenced by a lot of that pre-war sort of blimp design science fiction. In fact, the Dymaxion house, um, although it was never actually manufactured, only two prototypes were made. Um, Robert Heinland actually ordered a Dymaxion house for himself. And he never got and it. And he, he never got it. Yeah, you never want to be the early adopter. I know, never showed up. But but the Dymaxion house were, was a, was an example of a, a and and, a, and an early example of this idea that you could mass produce homes that had everything you need in one, you know, easy to construct modular framework that was kind of modern based on a modern style, but also, you know, it all might, mod cons. It might look like a, it might look like a Quonset hut, but there is some kind of prescriptive utopianism there, right? That this will make it easier for everybody to have a house. Nobody has to live in a house with old fashioned stuff or bad, this or bad, that, that, and, and a lot of practical things like you want a house that, uh, is easy to heat and keep warm is easy to cool. In on hot days is mm -hmm. easy to clean, and a lot of uh, I think a lot of modernism had this sort of practicality that now when we think of uh, keeping a house warm, I mean it's still a thing that every house owner kind of has to wrestle with in in their way. Like, is my house cold? Is it drafty? Is it warm? Um, but if you, but, but most of those are answered with like, oh, I should get nicer windows exactly. or better insulation. It's not like is my front room shaped wrong if you had grown up in a house that you kept that you heated with coal uh it would be i think a lot more intriguing to you to be told that this was a house that you could heat with a single light bulb yeah or heat with your um with your own static electricity as you moved through the rooms we're too pampered for the advances of modernism we're like yeah we already have that Essentially, we have some cheap offshore version of that. You can get a space heater at Lowe's for, I don't know what, $15. And it almost certainly won't set your house on fire. I mean, the Seattle solution to not, nobody having air conditioning was just like, well, I'll just get box fans. Yeah, Every, everybody will own four <laughs> box fans. How many box fans do you own? <laughs> I actually don't own any. Uh, anymore. Anymore, yeah. yeah. 
I, I still have I still have an attic full of them. I still sleep with white noise machines on because it reminds me of the box fans of childhood. Yeah, right. My my daughter has to have a fan to sleep. Very soothing. A lot of uh, a lot of us will remember one of the more striking examples of this um, metabolism architecture was only just demolished this year. Oh no! Uh, the uh, the Nakagin Capsule Tower in Japan, which was designed by Kisha Kurakawa. And if you look at the capsule tower, uh, uh, this is one of those episodes of Omnibus that I really want to just have it be a, a slideshow because it's, there's so much to, there's so much of it th- that is inspiring and you can only really get inspired by looking at it. So if, if you're interested, futurelings, go Google some of these buildings because you'll recognize them and also they're, they're stunning. Omnibus is like podcasting about architecture. But the capsule tower was, um, you know, a skyscraper built around a central core where each of the little living pods had a giant fishbowl window and they really were snapped into place. Um, In kind of artfully asymmetric fashion. So it looks a bit like a Lego creation of some kind. It's great. Yeah. Sort of a fractal. Yeah. uh, Tetris. And the living spaces were small but completely and 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 not in the not in the kind of you slide into a coffin style of japanese uh railroad station hotel but you know a very livable environment with everything you need kind of built into the structure um but small enough that they were originally thought of pr- primarily as like bachelor apartments yeah and this is a new way of we, we like a lot of things in the last 15 to 20 years, we feel like we've reinvented the idea of a tiny house or, you know, super efficiency apartments in cities. But in fact, this was a way of thinking all the way back to the post-war environment. You know, Tokyo was a demolished city and in rebuilding it, the thinking was Sp- why not space efficient? Yeah. But also like, let's, let's, push the boundaries. Let's, I mean, how do we want to live in this kind of world if we don't? And I think also the it, sizes of the tiny houses today are probably pretty close to what we're, what our grandparents might've considered regular houses. Well, tiny houses and modular apartments. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those if super efficiency micro apartments. It, yeah. Well, that's what we call them now. Micro apartments. Um, in Seattle, there are all these zoning issues about, uh, Builders wanting to put in micro apartments on this uh, on a plot of land that used to have a single family home, and in some cases they have twenty apartments in them. All of them really just a bed, a little microwave kitchenette. Um, in some cases, the bathrooms down the hall, even you know, a, like a single room op- occupancy type space. Yeah, there's a lot of them have shared bathrooms, I think. But they're very popular with young people who are moving to the city and don't have a ton of money, want their own private private place, but intend to spend all of their time out in the world. It is a philosophy of living as much but, as it is. Uh, but it's also been foisted on them by real estate prices. Well, I mean, it if, has, but if, I mean. If, if they could pay that for a two-bedroom, maybe they would want a two-bedroom, but. Well, if you could pay that for a <laughs> seven-bedroom house on San Juan Island, you would, right? I'm just saying it doesn't necessarily come organically out of their social lives. No, but it is a philosophy of life that takes into consideration yeah. the modern world, yeah. right? I mean, if you were living in a bombed-out Tokyo, you might want a seven-bedroom home too. But it's a question of how do you 
how are you going to live within the constraints of modernity? Mm-hmm. And a lot of young people try and solve that problem. Or the expectation would be that there'd be seven of them living in a house together. Um, but this is a... Privacy is more privileged today than ever before. Yeah. And the there is a kind of Marie Kondo, does it spark joy, minimalism that is very fashionable even with the very wealthy or maybe exclusively with the wealthy, where the idea of stuff... Causes anxiety. Yeah. Like, let, I'll, I'll simplify my life and, and I'll have less to worry about. Accumulating stuff, uh, you can feel like there's a um, there's a moral component, an anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist, right. like all I need is to live in this tiny space and that somehow is virtuous. Stop giving me all these extra things. And potentially is virtuous. I'm just going to eat them. If your primary concern is climate change, you should be living in a tiny space and you should be not collecting tons of stuff and spending a bunch of money on heating to keep, as I do, five bedrooms warm for all of the red ghosts uh, that live with you. The shocking graph you see is like how many, like how many clothes, how many outfits people buy compared to 10, 20, 50 years ago. Yeah. And it's insane. Like the, the dawn of kind of this fast, fast fashion cheap um, sweatshop kind of stuff just means everybody buys 10 times the clothes that they need. I was talking to a friend the other day who said that she'd gone through all her stuff and she was getting rid of a bunch of stuff and she'd given away 15 pairs of jeans. And I was like, wow, awesome. Congratulations. How many pairs of (laughs) jeans do you have left? And she was like, I mean, fewer than 30. And I was like, you used to have 45 pairs of jeans. She's like, well, every pair was different. Yeah, I'm a three jeans guy checking out here. Yeah, I mean, I just wear jeans until they fall off me, and then I get another pair of jeans. And probably they, the, the same. Jeans get worse. And probably worse the same one. Yeah. yeah. John, let's say I'm making stuff. Let's say mm. I want to sell the stuff that I make mm-hmm. online. I've got content like pottery or Lego. Uh, it's content, Saturn but then it's box? related pottery. Like when one of my posts is really a hit. I want people to buy an earthenware version of it. So is this a thing where the the content is driving the pottery sales or the pottery is driving the content? Look, I just want to combine my two great loves, making content and throwing pots. Yes. And if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Well, here's how you monetize some of that content in a way that fits your brand. Yes. Squarespace has member areas where you can unlock new revenue streams for your business and free up your time in your schedule by selling access to gated content like videos of yourself potting, online courses in pottery, newsletters about pottery. And if I have videos that I'm going to, I mean, first I'm going to release the videos of me doing the TikTok dances, and then I want to make pottery versions of that. So pottery versions of the TikTok dances? Yeah, of the video. Of the video of the TikTok It's like a tie-in. It's like, you know, when adult Disney fans buy like a little porcelain diorama of the Haunted Mansion. I don't know anything about this. Or maybe Belle's dad making weird inventions before he runs off to the beast. Zero familiarity with what you're describing. Imagine a version of this where the little porcelain things are me doing a series of TikTok dances. Yeah. So first I need a video studio. Does Squarespace have that? Yes, it does. You can create those pro-level videos effortlessly with the Squarespace Video Studio app. It will help you make and share 
engaging videos of your pottery depicting you TikTok dancing. No, again, the pottery not in the video. No, the video is just me dancing. The pottery about the video of you dancing. But there's no videos of the pottery. Right. That would be insane. Oh, no, you could do that. You could use Squarespace Video Studio app to videotape videotape yourself dancing. Right. Make pottery about it, Uh and then videotape yourself making pottery about the videotape of you dancing. Okay, it's got a video story. Okay. But then how do I sell the physical pottery? Do they have... Like, do they have e-commerce stuff? Is it, can I make my Squarespace site an online store? Absolutely. Squarespace has all the tools you need to start selling online. This sounds fantastic. I'm going to go to squarespace.com slash omnibus right now because I hear I can get a free trial. You can get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code omnibus and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. The, the tiny house movement of the 60s it was it was uh it was kind of motivated by a lot of the same questions how do i how do i live in the city inexpensively have all my uh you know have everything i need without kind of bouncing and if you think about a if you think about people in a lot of european cities a lot of American towns, they would have continued to live with their parents in prior generations. Yeah. You know, like in Italy, you have multi-generations living in houses. In Japan, you would have kept living with your family. And now the idea of having your own place and the fact that it was only 150 square feet would have barely mattered compared to like the excitement of having your own spot. Um, the capsule tower, the Nakagin capsule tower – was a landmark in uh, in Japan and appeared in films and over time wasn't cared for very well. Became was was adopted and beloved by artists primarily, and it became a shabby sort of the idea. The idea that Kurokawa had was that they were that the capsules themselves were kind of disposable, and the expectation was that. Like you could slot them in and out. Yeah, you'd pop one out and put another one in once it kind of fell apart. But that never happened. Um, and the the whole metabolism school, um, you know, they were they they wrote a manifesto in 1960, but and there were a lot of designs, a uh-huh. lot, but never widely adopted. It didn't when you think about. If there were a dozen capsule towers of different shapes and sizes, you know, maybe the philosophy of maintaining them and replacing capsules and uh, maybe it would have all kind of grown organically. But it's very hard to maintain the philosophy that the the architecture suggests if it's the only one. Right. And – uh, if it's going to be plug and play, you need to have standardized uh, outlets back there, right? And 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 it didn't. Um, and and I think that's true of a lot of sort of sweeping uh, philosophies of change. If everyone does this, it'll work. Yeah, but if everybody doesn't, then it just becomes one weird capsule tower. And there was a big movement to save that tower, f- you know, for decades as a, and a landmark it. But in Japan, landmark laws. Mm. kind of aren't the same as they are here and eventually they uh they tore it down. I think some of the capsules were saved, preserved and and they're wonderful little they feel very science fiction to us now. 
And they would have felt very science fiction in 1960. It's just that, or 1968 or whatever, 72. 72 is when it was built. It had 144 units. Somewhere between 1972 and 2022, there was a period in the middle that may have lasted a, a pretty long time where that futuristic sci-fi style started to seem cheap and corny and people didn't maintain that furniture because a lot of it was plastic Yeah, and plastic became uh, synonymous with gimcrack uh, ticky tacky and like most architectural resurgences, now it starts again to look really prescient and really um, efficient. But many of the houses we're going to talk about today did not survive uh, in the same way that a lot of the best architecture in Seattle did not survive to uh, <laughs> to maturity. We're lucky nobody tore down the Space Needle. That nah, just kind of looks, it's got a 60s vibe. It's a little whack. Um, we're going to now pivot to Finland. What's going on in Finland? Well, as you know, the Scandinavians were really ahead of the curve on this kind of design. So much so that a lot of the furniture is described as Danish furniture or Swedish furniture, Scandinavian design. The whole premise of IKEA is that for the masses. Yeah, and and IKEA has persisted in making things that are kind of neo-futuristic and selling them to college students, which was, which was the idea back in the fifties. Um, so a lot of what, and, and, and there's a lot of feeling in the culture today that can't quite figure out whether Ikea is a great boon to the world or whether Ikea is ruining the world with their, with making cheap kind of disposable stuff. Yeah. The particle board shelves that keep falling down. Is IKEA a joke, or is IKEA actually a like a factor, a positive factor in a kind of social democracy, where nice-ish things are available to a lot of people? Right. And in order for them to be available to a lot of people, they have to be nice-ish, but they're still nicer, and also are imbued with a spirit of design. They should have, they should have the ability to have some of the style and design. Yeah. If you go into those little mocked up apartments in Ikea showrooms, <laughs> you, it's very easy to stand in the middle of one and go, I don't need any more space than this. If I just lived in this little, this is a little kitchen, a little bathroom, a room, it's got a little fur blanket. I feel like in general, our, the Ikea furniture we've gone through has held up pretty well. It's, it's done the, the shelving stuff it was supposed to, the kids' desks or whatever it was. The table we are recording this show upon was in the IKEA uh, dinged up <laughs> bargain section, and I was walking through that. You know, I always go through the bargain section. I'm walking through there, and there was this giant table, and I don't remember what it was. It was like ninety dollars, and I said, "How is that possible?" And so. I picked it up and you know you you can you can attest that this table is not you cannot pick this table up it's it's giant it's 10 feet long but I kind of dragged it and rolled it 
over to the cash register, bought it, and then sort of pushed it over to the door, went and got my truck, single-handedly kind of wrestled it in, and then took it home and went through this whole process again, just wrestling it into my old house. And then you showed up to record, and remember, we'd had a smaller kitchen table. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there was this massive... I didn't realize. So this table has a name. What's its name? Uh, Glip Glorp. Glip Glop. Glip Glop. I'm not sure. Uh, they probably don't make it anymore. It's it's really a big table. You need a big big room for it. But but so Finland, although Norway, Sweden, and Denmark get all the credit uh, because the Finns are an entirely separate people, utterly not even Scandinavian, strictly speaking, <laughs> utterly unlike. Anyone else except Estonians, Hungarians, and Japanese. <laughs> um, Finland also a very, a very a country very interested in technology and futurism, and was ever since the end of the war. I think their position, you know, sandwiched between the Nazis and the and the commies. Yeah, what turned out so many famous Finnish architects in the forties and fifties? Is it maybe a tradition dating back to the? Dating back to the Bauhaus. I don't well, know. a lot of them graduated from the Helsinki University of Technology, mm. like our Go like the hero H-U-T. of our story today, Mati Suronen. And that's not a Dune name, <laughs> although Suronen, I think. There's two two U's, so Suronen. Speaking of minimalism, Su-ronen. maybe get rid of a U. That's, yeah, right. That, do you need the second U? They probably just say Suronen. And you only hear the, it's like Hawaiian words where you can hear the, the bleep in it, but you're not sure where it is. Baron Saronin, got it. But he was very interested in plastics and polyester building materials. Um, he kind of learned the science, the, the fiberglass and plastic science as part of his, his education and his actually his first architectural commission was kind of like Buckminster Fuller or, or inspired by it was the roof of a grain silo that he built out of polyester, uh, you know, fiberglass. Yeah. But, but, but on the plastic side of fiberglass and he graduated from university, Helsinki university of technology and began his own architecture firm right away. And was playing around a lot of different designs and was asked by a friend of his to design a ski cabin that would be, you know, a a kind of après ski environment that uh, the only requirements were that it was easy to build out in a ski environment and also easy easy to keep warm. Okay. And so he designed what he called the after ski cabin, which... Is the futuro the futuro of our show? It started out as a as a little ski lodge place. A little ski lodge. It was basically sixteen pieces bolted together into a UFO shape. And when you look at it, and I encourage everyone to uh, to Google the image, it looks like 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 a a comedy little UFO. It looks like, I I think that the escape pod that Roger Moore got into at the end of, um, the spy who loved me. 
yeah. uh, is modeled on the the Suronin Futuro. The elliptical windows, especially mirroring the shape of the pot itself, really kind of lend it that just looks like one of the little aliens from Toy Story. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the elliptical windows are uh, are both super cute and also... Um, are they practical on any level? Well, if you get inside, the environment that they create is, to me, uh, and I say that as someone who is suspicious of a lot of gimcrackery, architectural novelty, I just find it a very compelling and, and although very modern, also very warm environment. I agree. From the outside, you are reminded of a, of a joke or a submarine or something, but you're right. On the inside, you, you kind of think, why aren't all windows this shape? Yeah, and the, the, the naturally curved nature of the structure itself, if you put square windows in it, it would look weird. Yeah. But the but the oval windows make the roundness of everything also kind of uh, and and the, the 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 furnishings inside are all built in. So it is a, effectively a conversation pit. A whole half of it is just a a wrap around couch uh with a fireplace in the middle or the heating in the middle. Was it all kind of pre-furnished with the same Yeah. Well, you could order it different ways, but yeah, the furniture was and th- this is true of a lot of this style of architecture. It's built-in furniture. Yeah. That's how to maximize the 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 utility of the space. You never have to vacuum under anything if there's no under it. That's right. And and you don't, you know, having one of those efficiency apartments on Capitol Hill and bringing your grandmother's brass bed in there is not, <laughs> you know, it's it's all got to work together, right? I just had to move my son's bed into a a college apartment not big enough for it, but that didn't trouble him. No. Of course not. You right. can't you can't open the closet door all the way. I mean, Finnish architects would be rolling over in their grave, but he wanted his bed. Well, so he designed and built this Futuro number one, uh, or rather zero zero one, serial number zero zero one, and installed it as a vacation cabin on a Finnish lake, and it immediately inspired tremendous outcry from the neighbors. They hated it. Hated it. Because they had in mind what a Finnish vacation cabin looked like, and it had rusticity, and it had mm. classic lines, and it was part of the the uh, aesthetic, and again, presumably an ethos of what it meant to be on vacation at a Finnish lake, and it did not mean... But none of that is innate. It's not like the squares and triangles of a, of a wooden cabin of any kind fit in with nature in some way that this weird yellow ellipse does not. Well, it may surprise you to learn that people complain about things without a ton of justification. <laughs> and in this case, they complained enough that it became, a, you know, it was a little bit of a, um, well, there, there, it was a considerable controversy uh, whether or not these buildings would be allowed. And w- the wonderful thing about them is that these 16 pieces bolted together, a-, a team of two could build one of these houses in three days. Ikea. All they needed was One four- Allen wrench. That's right. One, uh, one Allen wrench that you had to share, and your knuckles would be all screwed up. But <laughs> uh, all it needed was four concrete piers, and you could put it anywhere. You could put it on the side of a hill. 
um, because it stood on legs like a like a little UFO. Yeah. So depending on the slope of the hill, you you, you could adjust the legs. Yeah, to make you could it... put it in a wetland. You could put it anywhere that you could put four legs. Yeah, there's no foundation. And so he took one to London and displayed in 1968. Displayed it at a like a Finnish housing, you know, fin- Finnish some, home supply some kind of exhibition design showcase, and it was. It created quite a stir. People were excited by it. And if you think about 1968, now we're in peak swing in London. There's a lot of plastic. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of velvet suits. And, you know, this would be the time for it. The unexpected artificiality and color palette of it is actually perfect for the moment. Right. Um, and so... He contracted with a, a company called Polychem, which was famous for making, or not maybe even famous, but was known for making advertising signs. And Polychem uh, was going to mass produce Futuro homes. Um, some of them were installed in, uh, in Finland as gas stations, um, and they were... They were manufactured briefly in the United States, but also sent, you know, you could order them and they were basically an Ikea kit. They were sent around the world, but sent around the world in extremely few numbers. If you, um, if you look at a list of the places where there are Futuro homes now, it's quite a long list of countries. But then you notice that there's only one or two in every country. So it was an example of a thing where some early adopters thought, man, this is the way to go. And there's two in New Zealand and one in Taiwan and one in France, this type of thing. The problem in the United States was, could they just, is it production? They couldn't just ramp it up or was it a very expensive or they weren't expensive and it wasn't a production problem. The problem was that, when they were introduced into the United States, there were appeals to zoning laws mm. saying that they were not permitted according to zoning because neighbors hated them. So as soon as one shows up, they change the code. <laughs> they were they were like geodesic domes, except except it they seemed to be um, like making a mockery of the whole idea they're, of a house. They're thumbing their nose at you. Yeah, uh, they were. Uh, banks refused to finance them because they didn't seem like legitimate houses. And so although they, although Polychem was prepared to manufacture these in the thousands, fewer than a hundred were made. And over the years, they were left to rot. Um, as recently as the early 2000s, there was one on the on the coast in Delaware that was destroyed in order to make room for a mobile home. <laughs> um, That's something that really fits in with its environment, a, a trailer park. Yeah, pretty bad. You see a lot of them even now covered with moss, abandoned in the forests. Are, they don't really rot. They're fiberglass, right? Uh, have they held up to the years better than a lot of other housing would have? The thing about plastic is that plastic and fiberglass technology has continued to evolve. Mm. And they sit out in the sun and the rain, and the materials do degrade. 
Um, if you were to make them now, the technology has improved dramatically t- in the material science, and they'd be much more. Um, they they'd both be much more durable, and also I think there's a lot of movement now to start building using plastics and fiberglass because it's very it's very good insulation. You know, it's energy efficient. Is there a, like is it unfashionable because it's petro based? Well, so that is what a lot of people credit with the death knell of the Futura home. Oh, like the the gas crisis? In 1973, right when production would have been kicking into gear, the oil crisis made all plastics incredibly expensive compared to what they'd been. And the... So if the main point here is the affordability... Yeah, it wouldn't have been possible. And plastic as a result, kind of fell out of fashion and the, uh, you know, the, the market collapsed. What's interesting is that Suronin took his idea and expanded the concept to a new style of house called the Venturo or Venturo, which is by, to my eye, an even cooler, even better, modular, little vacation tiny home. <laughs> this is really good. It only has seven pieces. It looks like a clock radio. I it love does. this. It does. It looks like a clock radio. It's, you know, walls of windows. And when I look at them now, I mean, if you go on, if you go on Dwell, the hilarious website that we always laugh, a merry laugh toward. There are so many modern backyard tiny homes being designed using a lot of these stylistic cues, a lot of the same materials, but all kind of not as cool and not as well done as the Venturo house. It's just been downhill. Since the 70s. Well, no, I think for, for, for 40 years, nobody did that at all. They just built cookie-cutter homes in the suburbs that were five feet from each other. But now that tiny homes are back not just as a style but as a philosophy, um, you know, modern architects are trying to build these little 200-square-foot houses. And why they don't bring the Venturo back into production, I have no idea. The Venturo house— You'd think somebody would just be doing cheap lookalikes of it. I'll yeah, do that. I'll do that. Right. Well, and, and that's another. This is another moment where I'm saying I'm ready to be an entrepreneur and go into business. It's either going to be bringing camels into the United States, or I want to bring Venturo Matt Saron, or Ma, Matty Saronin's Venturo houses back into production because you could create an entire community out of them, and I think people would be extremely happy to live there. I kind of wonder what it would look like at scale. You know, you see all these things posed just at the side of a gorgeous lake. And of course, it's fun to have like a house that looks like a Tic Tac next to a gorgeous lake. Would there be some kind of Stepford effect if you just had a Levittown full of these? Well, I think like a lot of modern architecture, it is built with an idea of how it is it going to interact with its environment. <laughs> and I think, what you know, if I think about a community of... 50 Venturo homes, one of the, one of the things would be you would have, uh, you would have this plot of land that was landscaped with a lot of trees 
you would situate the homes in ways that you weren't all looking right into each other's bedrooms. They're not all lined up. I mean, this is the problem with with the Levittown and with a lot of subdivisions is just that the houses are all, you know, they're all designed around the the garage and they're slammed up against each other. You could take these little pods and move them to the middle of a lot that size and you still have a lot more room. Right, or you could put 50 of them somewhere and move them just enough that you couldn't look into each other's windows, right? You just put each other at a slight... Slightly organic angle. A lot of that was uh, found an expression in a uh, in a giant, and and we could talk all day about some of these communities built in in Europe, where you know a, a sort of public housing project is also meant to be um, to interact with nature and to give to give you not just a box to live in. But a, but a key one was built in Quebec for Expo 67, and it's a it's an, a, a very large complex called the Habitat, well, it's called Habitat, uh, but also known as Habitat 67. And it was designed by a, a Canadian-Israeli architect named Moshi Safdi, and he actually used Legos as part of his, or rather used Lego as part of his... Uh, design process of to build this building. Oh, it's not made of Legos, but the prototypes would be. Yeah, he sat with Legos and basically designed this housing structure. And if you look at Habitat 67, yeah, you can see it. It's the Japanese blocks tower pushed to its design extreme. But what what every one of those apartments has is an outdoor space and privacy, but also is part of this organic unfolding community and uh, you know, the one of the disadvantages of habitat 67 is it's built in a part of it's built in a part of montreal that's not really accessible to the rest of the city you know oh. if you were to do this properly you, you would screw up utopia if the light rail doesn't work <laughs> exactly you'd have to build this and many others like it in, in a in a location that interacted with each other you know you don't want to just go out to a have to drive your car out to this, but the, but the building itself is very successful. And I think it has been converted into, uh, a, uh, there's a homeowners association and all those apartments now have been sold to the owners. And so it's, you know, a collective community of people. Nice. Um, but sadly the Venturo suffered even more from the oil crisis. Only, uh, nine of them survive to the present day, but they're pricey. Yeah, well, there's a there's actually a company that recently took one of the Futuros and restored it to its, you know, factory fresh condition and sold it, and I think got all the money for it. There's nothing. All the all the plans for these are are, if not public domain, certainly they're on the web because I looked at all the blueprints. It certainly seems like, you know, you, you, you could maybe build one from scratch based on those designs or, or similar. If I were a billionaire, for instance, who like had all the money in the world, rather than buy a social media uh, white elephant, I would have started pumping these out by the tens of thousands. Talk about being a hero of the people. What a legacy you'd have. I know. They'd call them rod pods. They'd call them rod pods. And now you, well, maybe, maybe it's not too late. Womp, womp, womp. Um, another example of this, and this only recently 
this kind of similar tragedy. I told you about going to Molokai last year, and there was a whole resort that had right. been built there and was just completely abandoned for decades. Yeah, and it was you know, and it looked from a distance like, wow, this is a beautiful Hawaiian resort. And then you got there, and it's like this is full of red ghosts. Like there are so many lost camels with dead people tied to their backs wandering around here. Another example of that is in Taipei or outside of Taipei in Taiwan. Um, a vacation community uh, construction was begun uh, on, a, on a sort of a whole vacation hotel complex. It's known as the Sanzi UFO houses. Hmm. And they're very much modeled on the idea of the some cross between Futuro and Venturo, but in two and three story buildings. How does it work? You kind of stack them? Yeah, stack them. And I mean, if you, if you look at them, the, the Sanzi UFO houses, uh, it was a similar kind of like, we're going to make space age cool and we're going to put it in this beautiful native environment. Um, and it's going to be the coolest thing in the world. Unfortunately, and they started working on them in about 1978. So post the worst of the energy crisis, maybe the last minute before 80s architectural glitz and glam uh, relegated yeah. the, this sort of Playboy magazine era plastic uh, UFO house to the to at least the dustbin for 40 years. They're not playfully staggered like the Japanese or the or the uh, uh, Quebecois examples we looked at, they really are just kind of stacked, which gives it kind of a kind of a fun industrial kind of vibe. Yeah, it it's feels like, like a you, uh, like a Mars colony. Yeah, you, you live in a water tower or something. Well, I mean, you're talking about the difference between Taiwan and Montreal. That's true. Uh, unfortunately, they started building them in 1978, and apparently, in expanding the access road to the site, they in I guess needed to bisect a dragon uh, a, like a dragon line ancient like a, dragon line of some kind like kind of, kind of a, 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 a imaginary chi path I don't want to say imaginary but let's call it a chi path. metaphorical chi path of some kind the feng shui and that was so inauspicious that over the course of the two year construction project there uh there were enough freak car accidents and suicides just among the construction crew that in combination with, I think, some other economic factors caused them to never complete the project. It's, and, the, it's the eternal struggle between modernism and its longtime enemy, dragons. <laughs> the dragons won. Well, and... and Modernism and its longtime uh, enemy, not everyone adopting your futuristic philosophy. Yeah, but uh, on the other hand, the people who ad ad uh, the people who are early adopters of that kind of thing, they don't want everybody to be into it. Right? They want to be. They probably want to be the only, you know, goofy dome home or flying saucer home for miles around. If everybody had one, they'd get into something else. Exactly. Although one of the problem, you know, one of the problems with the Futuro homes was that. There were bathrooms in them, but a lot of people who bought them were like, well, I need a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. And they ended up 
kind of grafting the Futuro home onto uh, their other structure or another structure grafted onto it. You know, there's, there's only so much, you know, if the philosophy is all encompassing, not everybody is going to be able to just live in a 200 square foot place, especially if they, if they're like, I'm Mr. Guy, I'll just get this and I'll, I'll add a, I'll add a new master suite. Yeah. So the, the Sanzi UFO houses, Although used in films and uh, a lot of these structures actually appear in film and TV, always standing in as an example of uh, like a decaying post-apocalypse, the utopia that has come and gone. Yeah, Uh, But they sadly were also fairly recently demolished, leaving No. no UFO houses Except the ones, if, I mean, if you're driving, if you're driving down the road in the outback somewhere in Queensland, and you see one of these being used as a chicken shed, run over and offer the guy five hundred bucks because it's probably worth a thousand times, and, and send it to send it to us here at five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one. If you send John one of these, he will never get serious about inventing his rod pods. So well, or maybe uh, this will be the model of my rod pods. It'll be your rod pod mod. Rod pod mod. That is mod. And that concludes the Futuro House entry five one zero dot one k zero six zero nine, certificate number four nine seven two nine, in the omnibus. Let us uh, remind you again for the five hundred and twenty second time that uh, we do not condone social media or any of its effects or any of its billionaire owners. And yet here we are at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, uh, on various uh, platforms and devices. Our email address, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Send us all your corrections and errata and erotica to that address. Um, Send your... uh, modular ikea homes to p.o box 55744 shoreline washington 98155 find the futurelings online on reddit and facebook and whatever meta you'd call it meta we still call it we still call it facebook we're, <laughs> we're like the old people still saying siam or uh, abyssinia or something we still call it facebook uh you can uh Support the show in any number of ways. Write a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, we never think to ask people to do that. Tell if, Every time I say it, you say we never do that. We should do that. <laughs> I just did. Let's do that. The problem is solved. Uh, you can, uh, yeah, Apple Podcasts. Tell them you enjoy the rod, the mod rod pod pod, mm-hmm. which is what the show is now called. The mod rod pod 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 mod. Oh, we're going to mod it. We're going to mod the mod pod. What mod are we going to do to it? We're going to put in some rods. (laughs) You're a mod rod pod god. The uh, best way to support the show, of course, is to go to patreon.com slash omnibus project. If you've considered joining the show and you were just waiting for something about houses, modular houses that look like flying saucers. um, Well, your day has come. I guess uh, we should credit this particular 
Shout to a listener named William who uh, donated at the Washing Bear level and was able yeah. to was able to suggest a show topic this year. And uh, you chose this one over his other two ideas: one about um, American pinkos in the Spanish Civil War, the other about. I've already read "The Sun Also Rises." Although we could do a show about the Lincoln Brigade, but this is interesting yeah. to me: the eccentric millionaire hippie who handed out a hundred dollar bills on the streets of New York in 1970. I do not know that story. It was interesting to me, except that there was just a documentary made about it that uh, came out a month ago, and I figured if I did an episode, I would be recapitulating. Please request things from groundbreaking documentaries of the 70s, 80s, and 90s so we can steal that material without looking like we just we just happened upon it on Hulu. Um, <laughs> so thank you, William, for suggesting the show, and uh, we encourage others to follow in his footsteps and head to patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon. And we wish you many goods and cheese. For another entry in the office.